Well, the title of the message today is Trying or Trusting. And when you think about life, there's so many of us as human beings. There's something, it's almost like a fallen default mode in our hearts where we want to try. I'm just going to do better. I'm going to turn over another leaf. I'm going to make some New Year's resolutions. I mean, I'm going to try harder to be somebody that God will approve of. That's slavery. That is slavery. God has called us to freedom. And that's the picture of this passage of Scripture this this morning. God has called us to sonship. He's called us to trust. He's called us to look to Him and wait upon Him. In fact, this passage begins with verse 21. And he says, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you listen to the law? So the Galatians had been infiltrated by these Jewish teachers, false teachers that we've been calling the Judaizers. And these false teachers had come in and the Galatian church was primarily Gentiles or pagans, as they were known oftentimes, that had been converted. But now they were being taught, well, it's okay It's all right for you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but you must keep the law of Moses. You must go back to the Old Testament. You've got to embrace all of these teachings and you've got to hold them close for God to approve of you because that's what he has called us to. And so Paul has some powerful arguments in this book and some powerful verses where he says, no, 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 we are not slaves to religion. We are not slaves to the law. We have been set free by the Son of God. And so this verse basically says, when when you talk about being under the law, it's talking about relying on the law for your acceptance before God. Why would you go back? Why would you turn away from the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus, what he has accomplished for us, what God has given us? Why would you turn back? And try to do something to earn God's approval. So that the position itself is, is actually undermining what the law says. The law shows us we really can't do that. And if you're trying to keep the law, which you cannot do, because Scripture says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, there's none righteous, no, not even one. If you're trying to keep the law, it stands as a contradiction against your very perspective that if I keep the law, somehow God will approve of me. In the trying of the keeping of the law, you can't do it. You find yourself frustrated. And so this first verse is basically saying, The way to God is not by keeping rules. Now, I want us to be very honest this morning because this has been the first four chapters of this book. It's a theological treatise in one sense, but it's also about where we live. Because every one of us as human beings, there's something down deep within us that has this desire to perform right. If I perform right, I will be approved of. If I perform for my parents, they will love me. If I perform in the classroom, I'll get an A. If I perform for God, then God will somehow be pleased with me. But that's not what the gospel is. That's not what grace is. 
Grace is God doing something for us in his heart of love that we could never do for ourselves. And we can not add anything to the grace that God has given us. And so he says, you don't even listen to the law because the law itself would show you that your way of thinking, a religion of works, leads to slavery and to death. A religion of grace. The grace that God's given us brings freedom and it brings life, the life of Christ to us. So really this message is about two contrasts. It's about contrast between two ways. It's either trying or it's trusting. So there's a lot of twos in here. So he begins with two sons in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. So the the Judaizers, these false teachers, had come into Galatia, and they had been teaching them that, well, you are not really children of Abraham unless you keep the law of Moses. You must keep the law of Moses. And so there, there are two ways to be rightly related to Abraham. One is right, and one is wrong. In fact, you cannot actually be rightly related to Abraham through that way. And so that's kind of the picture that Paul is about to give. So Paul says, basically, the moment you put your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has done a work in your heart and your life, and you become an heir of promise, you're adopted into God's family, you receive justification, and the the acceptance of God is upon your life. And it is all by grace through faith. That is the right way to be Received in, in the sense of being a, a son of Abraham. So he tells a story. And he says there were these two sons. Now, you guys, probably, if you're reading through the Bible this year, you've been in the book of Genesis. And early on in the book of Genesis, in chapter 12, God comes to this man. He was a Chaldean. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. He was just a man. And there was nothing about him that really warranted anything except that God said, Abraham, I'm choosing you to be the father of many. And he he raised him up. He showed his grace upon Abraham. He called him out and he gave him a promise. And he said, basically, that you are going to be the father of many nations. And and he he says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And so inherent in that promise was the fact that Abraham was going to have children. Now, there's only one problem. His wife, Sarah, was barren. She could not have children. And so Abraham believed, Scripture says, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Abraham didn't do anything. He just believed. And it was counted unto him as righteousness. Now, here's where the problem begins to arise. Over the years, Abraham and Sarah waited. And there were no children. And so, as they had waited about 10 years, in chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, God again gives this promise. You're going to have children. And so, Abraham said, well, how about Eliezer? He's from Damascus. He's not my son, but he's my chief servant. He's in my house. How about him? Maybe he's the guy. And God says, no, no, it's not him. He says, you are going to have a son. So, they, they wait again, and there's no son. 
Now, this is where we get in trouble. Because the flesh loves to do. The flesh loves, and I'm going to make a statement that I don't believe is even true, but this is the way we think. I'm going to help God out. I heard someone say one time that when we help God out, we leave God out. We can't help God out. How? That's ludicrous. I mean, the statement itself, it makes us laugh. It's like, really? I'm not going to help God out. But they decided to take matters into their own hands. And we often do this. I actually struggled this week with illustrations for this message from my life because I realized how many thousands of them there are where I've tried to help God out, where I have tried instead of trusted, where I felt like that God had said something in my heart, but it wasn't happening, so I've got to make it happen. And that's exactly what Sarah and Abraham did. And so Sarah says, hey, I've got a handmaid here. Why don't you marry her? And we, maybe through her we can, have, we can have this heir. And so Abraham says, sounds like a great idea to me. And sure enough, they have a child named Ishmael. And they think, well, this is, this is going to be the heir. And that's found in, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. Now, 14 years later, when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, guess what? She has a baby. She has a child. His name is Isaac, which means laughter. <laughs> I think that's, there's probably some uh, tongue-in-cheek in, in that whole thing. Uh, it's laughter. And, and here's Isaac, the son of promise. God has promised this child. Now, Paul uses this story as an illustration to contrast the child born into slavery because Hagar, Ishmael's mother, was a slave woman. The child born into slavery versus the child of promise, Isaac. And he also contrasts the mothers. Hagar, who was a slave woman, a servant woman, and Sarah, who was a free woman. Now here's the picture. The old covenant, the covenant of the law, produces slaves. When you go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, you see that. And the new covenant is the promise of God. Verse 25 of the same chapter. And he goes on in verse 23. He says, but the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And the son of the free woman through the promise. So Paul sums up the differences. Abraham knew he would have a child, but he didn't know how he would have a child. And because he didn't know how, he decided he was going to help God out. The only acceptable response to any promise of God is that we trust him. That's it. The only acceptable response is that we trust God. Now, trust God may include actions in your life, but we don't help him out. We don't try to make it work out. We don't try to engineer circumstances to make something happen in our lives. Now, very significant, it says that Ishmael was basically born according to the flesh. He was the product of self-reliance. 
Abraham did not rely on God. Abraham did not trust God, did not believe God in the deepest sense. And so he tried to help God. And when he did that, he got in trouble. He made a mistake. Now, just so that we're all on the same page, how many of you would say that in your Christian life, that some of the conflict, some of the hurts, some of the issues, some of the junk has been because in your heart and mind, you thought, you know what? I need to help God out. And I'm going to try hard to do something to make this work in my life. And it turned out to be a mess. How many of you raise your hand with me? And at least 50% of you. That's true. The other 50% need to go to the prayer room. I see two hands for some of you. Yes. We have all, every single human being, if your heart is beating, you're breathing, we have all walked in the flesh. There was flesh before the cross and there's flesh after the cross. God has a prescription for the flesh, but oftentimes we have self-empowered lives. And we say, I'm going to try hard. And we make some really bad mistakes. Now, Sarah was the free woman. It says she had a son who was born as a result of promise. So we are not saved by obedience to the law, but by the promises of God. And so there were two sons, Ishmael, a picture of the law, a picture of the flesh and Isaac, a picture of grace, a picture of trusting, not trying. And he goes on, he says, there are two covenants. Verse 24, this is allegorically speaking for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai. That's where the law was given, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, the covenant of law is the one covenant and the covenant of grace is the second covenant. And Paul is using this story as a good symbolic illustration of grace and works. He calls it an allegory. Now commentators will spend hundreds of pages talking about this whole issue. And, and I don't I don't think it's it's that big of an issue. It was a historical story and there are truths that you can pull out of it. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. I think where it becomes an issue is where people go to the Old Testament and they make it say things it's not really saying. And numerology is one of those areas that people have is going to see. And there are other areas where people will make the Old Testament say things it's not saying. But Paul, driven by the Spirit of God, as he, or led by the Spirit of God as he is writing this, these truths, uh, he has every right to use this as an illustration. And so he says basically Ishmael and works are depending on the flesh. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says that the law was weakened by the flesh. Israel's unbelief led them into disobedience. Abraham and Sarah's unbelief led them into disobedience. And the Galatians' unbelief of the true gospel was leading them into disobedience. But Isaac is a son of promise. Isaac is a fulfillment of God's grace being played out in lives who believe and receive what God has to say. So when you think about Mount Sinai, in essence, what he's saying is, is that the law bears children who are slaves. So Hagar and Ishmael represent the law covenant. 
and they were under slavery because of the law. And it was linked to Sinai because of the law being given there. And Jerusalem, because that's where the law was lived out. Everything about the temple uh, had prescriptions that were given from the law concerning the sacrificial system, which after Jesus came, the sacrificial system was removed because Jesus was the ultimate lamb of God. And so the grace of God was demonstrated and fulfilled through the grace covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Sarah and Isaac represent the covenant of grace. And he goes on to talk about two Jerusalems in verse 25. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Everyone who makes the law a means of justification. Please understand what I'm saying by that. In other words, the law is not bad. But we can never live out any aspect of the law until we understand the grace of God. And it is the life of Christ inside of us that enables us. That picture that I gave you a few weeks ago, the hand in the glove. It's Christ's life in me that enables me to live a life that brings glory to God. It's not me trying to do anything that would gain or earn God's acceptance. And so if you make the law the means for justification in your life, you're living in slavery. And so by his relationship with Hagar, Abraham was choosing to rely on his own power. He was working to gain his son, and he was acting as the king on the throne. He was making the choices himself for his life. Now, it's interesting that after Hagar had her baby, the story continues, and Sarah became very jealous because here's this woman who had a child, and she could not. And so she became very jealous and very contentious. And in essence, Hagar and Ishmael had to leave. They were cast out. And there was strife and there was warfare between the descendants of those two from then on. Now, I think it's interesting that Paul specifically says that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. And Islam comes out of the Arab nations. And so you have Islam, which is a religion of works. You do. You pray the exact same prayer five times a day. You go do this. You go do this. You go do this. If there is an infidel, you take their head off. I mean, you go through. In fact, in the Quran, it teaches that Ishmael, not Isaac, was the one that Abraham took to the mountain to sacrifice. It reverses everything. And that's what works always do. The flesh always tries to justify itself and to direct itself and to lift up itself by its own bootstraps. But here's the key. It is impossible by works 
Because Scripture says if it could be by works, then we would all be boasting. It is not by works. It is by grace for the glory of God. And so this picture here of the earthly Jerusalem is a picture of works and strife and warfare. And havoc ensues every time we don't trust God. I want to repeat that. Every time we don't trust God in your marriage, in your family, in your finances, in your relationships with others, in life, every time we don't trust God, there's always conflict and confusion. Things don't go well. Because we're trying to do it ourselves, He goes on in verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. <laughs> Earthly Jerusalem stands for those who try to attain their own salvation. The Jerusalem above stands for the grace of God. It stands for trusting God's heart. We've ceased trying and we've started trusting to attain salvation from God's heart. From his hand, not on the basis of anything that we do, but because of the goodness of God. That's why in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ. Christ lives in me. Christ is the source of my life. The source that I need for everything is Christ. And the life I now live in this body, I live by faith. Wait, I live by what? I live by faith. It doesn't say the life I now live in this body, I live by trying. It says I live by faith in the Son of God. Who, what? Who loved me. Who loved me. Grace is birthed out of love and gave himself for me. And so it's a beautiful thing. The Jerusalem above is a spiritual life that God gives us. It's the life of his Son. And it changes us. It transforms us. We are set free. We're no longer slaves. And he works in us and through us. Now, when it talks about Sarah and Jerusalem, it says Jerusalem is, she is our our mother. The Jerusalem above is our mother. In one sense, it's tying it back into Sarah as a spiritual mother because When she had Isaac, Isaac was a product of God's supernatural work. And out of Isaac, the whole world is blessed. And so when we trust God, we are children of promise, just like Isaac was. And so in that sense, the Jerusalem above, that picture of trusting God is a picture that we're children of promise. Now, the last one here, quickly, is there are two kinds of people. Verse 27, for it is written. Now, this... It is written, is in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Now, this was originally written for the exiles in Babylon. So you guys know about the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrians had taken away the northern kingdom. Finally, Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken away in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And it was a very difficult time. And, you know, when you're taken away into captivity and you're in bondage and you're under the 
the, the boot, so to speak, on the neck of your people for that many years, you kind of lose hope in yourself. And in this, Isaiah is being used by God. He says, rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. The exiles felt hopeless. They felt weak. But God is saying, look, you're hopeless and you're weak. And that's exactly where I wanted you. Because finally, you realize you have no strength. You have no ability. And I will give you everything you need. Church, that is good news this morning. We have no strength. We have no ability. And God will give us everything we need. His strength is perfected in our what? In our weakness. In our weakness. And so God calls us to himself. The strong rely on themselves. Hey, I can handle this. I've got this. I've, I've actually had people pray. And oh God, if I need you, I'll call upon you. You want to go, stop. Where'd that come from? You need him every moment of every day. You can't get out of bed in the morning. We, we were having prayer time before the service. And one of the men was praying, God. Apart from you upholding us, we would all be nothing. We'd be gone. We'd disappear. And that's true. We desperately need the grace of God. And so God looked on two women. One that was beautiful, young, fruitful, and she had a child. But God said, that's not the child of promise. That's the child of flesh. And he looked at another woman who was Older, much older. And she was barren. And it was impossible for her to do anything. And God said, I'm going to pour my grace out upon her. And he did. And he did an amazing thing. He chooses to save the world through the barren one. You know, many years later, he chose to save the world through a Savior who came through a virgin. I mean, God is constantly working in ways. That confounds man. It's not man's ways. Grace is not man's way. Works. Trying. Is man's way. Trusting is God's way. For us to trust, we have to be willing to get off the throne and say, God, I'm looking to you. And I would just say this to you. If you're here this morning, especially you women, I think there's a great passage of encouragement. There are women that would love to be married and have never been married. Or they would love to have a child, and they've never had a child. And they say, is there any hope for me? This passage screams, yes. I will use you. And it may not look like it looked with Sarah, but I will use you. In Sarah's day, the ultimate negative lifestyle for a woman was to be barren. Because it was a picture that God somehow had removed his blessings from your life. It's what Job's comforters told him. This goes way back. It's the lie of the enemy that says that it's all about God will bless if you do. But what God says is you come to me and you trust me and I will do through you what you cannot do yourself. And so God will use your life 
And God will bless your life. The world equates religion to those who are good. Oh, they're good people. They must be religious people. The gospel is for those who are not good. God saved me. And God saved you. When we acknowledged we were not good. And we couldn't do it. Verse 28 goes on to say, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. So he's talking to the church. And he says, listen, your life is owing to the supernatural work of God in you. God is the only one. Going back to the Isaiah passage. God was the only one who could get the children of Israel out of Babylon. And he did. And God is the only one who can enable us to walk and live in this life. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about who you trust and who is your source of life. Is it the Lord Jesus? Verse 29. But at that time, he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. Again, very interesting passage. Many commentators believe that this is talking about Isaac when he's being weaned. And Abraham threw a feast. And he he said, this is going to be a great time. Well, by that time, Ishmael is a teenager. And the teenager was standing over on the side watching this little three-year-old. You know, he's being weaned and he's kind of, you know, it's a bit new stage of life. And he was mocking him. He was mocking him. Nobody wants to be mocked. He's making fun of, of Isaac. And there's enmity to this day, Paul says, between these two groups. Now, clearly, we could get into Jews and, and, and Muslims and Arabs. And, and, you know, you go back to 1948, 1967. And you can see all that. But that's historic. That's on the surface. You go down to the heart. What's he saying here? There's something about religion and flesh that hates grace. It's got to be about what I did, what I do, how I perform, how I act. Listen, I, I fast once a week. I'm not like you other people in this room. I read my Bible every day. In fact, I've been memorizing the whole book of Psalms. I'm this, I'm that. And we, we go through and the flesh loves them. And when they hear somebody who talks about the grace of God and how God has done something... It makes them irritated. And part of the reason they get irritated is because religion always produces insecurity. I love the church that God discipled me in. But the church that God discipled me in had misunderstood something. It was always about, did you do the right thing when you were saved? It wasn't about the grace of God. Did you pray the right prayer? Were you on your knees when you prayed the prayer? Did, did you tell your parents when you prayed the prayer? Did you understand? That was a big one. Did you understand everything about what you prayed when you prayed the prayer? And do you know what that produced in that church? Because I heard those messages over and over again. It produced absolute insecurity and lack of assurance and salvation. So people were constantly going, well, I think about what they're saying. I must not have done everything right. I must have missed something. I, I, and, and that message, if you hear it over and over again, 
it starts getting you frustrated with God. It's like, well, God, how much is enough? And God's going, you're listening to the Judaizers. It's not about what you do. It's what I have done. The gospel is the power of God and salvation to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. So I, I wrestled through that. I doubted my salvation. Everybody else did. I mean, people were constantly being baptized in that church over and over again. Great statistics. We had a lot of baptisms this year. It was my fifth time to be baptized. Yeah, it's my third time. Evangelism is simply and compassionately sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and then leaving the results to God. That's grace. When someone hears the truth, it's the Spirit of God who works in their heart that draws them. I've got books in my office of horrible evangelism methods. I've got one that was written back in the 50s. In 1954, the Southern Baptist Convention had a big mantra, a million more in 54. They were going to gain a million people, and they did. But this evangelism book was written, and it says that when you get the prospect to a certain place, lower your voice, put your hand gently on their shoulder, and say, now, would you like to repeat the prayer after me? And you can go to heaven when you die. Do you know what that is? That is a sales tactic. Come over here and sign the contract. This car is yours. This sofa is yours. This house is yours. I'll put my hand on your shoulder. Listen. The grace of God is at work in hearts and life, drawing people unto himself. And when they hear the message of the gospel, their hearts are ignited with faith. And they receive. It's not because somebody told a heart-wrenching deathbed story. It's because God is at work. God is at work. It's a marvelous thing. And when we get this, we understand that there are people who are angry with grace. There are people who are angry that, listen, religion is about trying hard and doing it right and getting it together and cleaning up our act. And it's all a fallacy. You can't clean up your act. You can't get it together. You can't even do it right. Only God can do it. Only God gets the glory. Only the gospel can change hearts and lives. It's not religion. It's not Hinduism. It's not Buddhism. Listen, there, there are a billion Hindus in this world that are trying to do. There are Muslims who are praying five times a day the exact same prayer. There, there are Jehovah's Witnesses who are, who are knocking on doors because that's what they're to do. There are Mormons who are going on two-year mission trips when they graduate from high school because that's what they're to do, to please God. But they haven't been to the place where they understand being born according 
to the Spirit. Key phrase in this whole passage. It only happens if God intervenes. Born according to the Spirit. There are those who are born according to the flesh and those who are born according to the Spirit. Ishmael, flesh, bondage, turkeys. Turkeys. I'm sorry, if you have not been here, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And I don't have time to catch you up. Self-reliance. Isaac, born of the Spirit. Freedom. Eagles. God-dependence. Freedom. It's a marvelous thing. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. We're not slaves to religion is what he's saying. It's it's a, a great thing. What does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Now that sounds harsh. But that's what they did. Hagar had to leave. It is, it is not about my trying. The flesh needs to go. You leave. The Galatians that Paul was writing to had worshipped idols. And you remember just a few weeks back... We talked about that, and he said you're actually worshiping demons when you worship idols. And and now he equates believers who have maybe probably been truly saved, and now there are false teachers coming in and saying, "Yeah, but you got you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to eat this, not eat that. You got to have this festival. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this, or God will not please be pleased with you." And Paul says, "Who has bewitched you?" Foolish Galatians. Trust the heart of God. You add nothing to it. You trust. That's called faith. For by grace we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. We are children of freedom. Believers are the freest people in the world. (laughs) When you have met Christ and He becomes your life, everything about you changes. You no longer have to check off all the tick boxes. You are free in Christ. You are free. People say, oh, no. I mean, if, if people are just let to go free, and what would they do? That's the beauty of grace and the gospel. You see, when Jesus moves into you, he changes everything about you. And now he begins, he begins to fulfill his callings upon our life in supernatural ways. And you see it. You go, wow. How did that happen? God did that. It's an amazing thing. Verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Ishmael is a picture of wanting God on our terms. Okay, God, this is what I'm going to do. Religions all over the world have that perspective. This is what I'm going to do. Joseph Smith must have had some golden tablets. Taze Russell must have figured out that Jesus isn't really the, the Son of God for the Jehovah's Witness. I mean, 
religions all over the world have said, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to figure it out. And then there's grace. And there's grace. And that's why Paul was so animated. That's why Paul was so fired up. He said, I want you to get this. We're not children of the bondwoman. We're children of the free. We have been made free. In verse 1 of chapter 5 goes on to say, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It's a great thing. So, set free. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The gospel. And the older I get, the more I realize how wonderful it is. The more my deep appreciation. Some of you are sitting here this morning and say, Steve, this is all just basic stuff. I've got this. Be careful. A.W. Tozer said the curse of our generation is because we think we know the thing, we have it. You see, every day when I get up, there are two ways for me to live. One is to try, and another is to trust. To go back to Galatians 2.20 is to die. I go to the cross so that Christ can live his life through me. It's an incredible thing. You see, one of the things that the Scripture says is our delight is in the law of the Lord. And I would add to that in the Lord of the law. But here's the beauty of this. Jesus is not only Lord, but Jesus came to be our life. He is our life. And it's easy to drift into empty religion. Some of you are bored stiff this morning because you have drifted into empty religion. What you do here on Sunday morning is a waste of your precious time when you could be gaming. Or you could be watching football. Or you could be shopping or hanging out with your friends. You can easily drift into empty religion. Where your whole life is about doing a few things. Maybe writing a check, putting it in a love offering box. Or reading a few verses of scripture during the week. Or praying a few times before you eat a meal. But there's no life there. There's no life there. You've lost your focus on a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our joy. I am battling. And I don't mean that in a trying way. I am battling in my heart to every day be reminded of this truth that sets me free. Because if I don't get this right, I can quickly sink into try instead of trust. And when I walk down that road of try, it does not make for a good day for me. Would you stand with me quietly? Jesus did not come to give us religion. He came to give us himself. And we are free to serve God. This is the beauty of grace. We are free to serve God. Not because we have to. 
but because we now want to. Our new desires. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And our pleasure becomes the desire of God. Paul hit a home run with this. And I pray that those Galatians got it. Now, by the time you get to the book of Revelation and the churches that are listed there, one of the churches in Galatia was lukewarm. Somehow, someway, when you walk away from the true grace of God, the fire in your heart begins to wane. But when you are reminded, wow, God, you are an awesome God. Your grace is amazing. It starts that fire burning again. And you say, Lord, I want to live off the throne, at your feet, looking unto you, the author and the finisher of my faith. That's trusting, not trying. Praise team, come on up. Father, right now, as we close out this service, would you let the words of these, this, this song, these songs, be the words of our heart? God, would you let the cry of our heart this morning be, Lord, forgive me that I have been trying to live by flesh instead of by faith. God, this morning I choose the place of death for the flesh, the cross. And God, I pray that your life would empower me, would infill me, that, Lord, you would be the subject of my life, the satisfaction of my life, that, Lord, you would be the Savior of my life. I receive you. I trust you. I look to you. And, God, I pray that for me in the future, would be a child of promise filled with your spirit because of your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name.